0: Uh, This evening, I'll be going fast. And if you have a pen and paper, you'll be able to keep up. And if you don't, uh, you won't. (laughs) So I encourage you that after this uh, session is videotaped and up on the web page that you could refer to it if you have that need or interest. The first question this evening is, should we stop giving our business to businesses that are openly pro-gay? I think this question can be very simply answered But I will also go into depth after this text. I think that um, this is a question of personal conscience. And if you go to Romans chapter 14, there is a timeless principle there that I believe fits this question. Romans 14 uh, verses 22 and 23, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. If you have a doubt that going to Starbucks here in town, that is a very openly pro-gay business, if you have a doubt that giving them your business is not right, then you ought not to go there. If you have a conscience before God, for various reasons, that that is not a problem, then I think you have some liberty to do that. And now I want to get into a more uh, detailed response to help you see why I would say that if your conscience is not violated uh, with Starbucks that you have a freedom to go there. By the way, I'm not picking on Starbucks. They just happen to be a very corporate, high-profile business that is extremely pro-gay. Now while it's true that scripture raises sexual sin above other sins in its seriousness, Allah, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20, where is a line to be drawn? For example, is homosexual sin worse than adultery, or are they the same? If we don't buy coffee from Starbucks, should we also refuse to do business with a known adulterer or a known sweethearter? And if you make the point that homosexual agenda forces the issue in a way that heterosexual sin does not force the issue. That is, gays suing the Christian bakery over the refusal to bake a gay wedding cake versus no adulterer suing to make prostitution legal If you make the point that homosexual agenda forces the issue more and therefore deserves a greater boycott, then is the degree of pushback against God's biblical will for sexuality, is the degree of pushback to that the justification for boycotting? Another bunch of questions that I think we ought to ask. Does boycotting best address the homosexual sin that we oppose? For instance, does boycotting call out the sin in the most effective way, or do we have to picket Starbucks to do that? Number two, does boycotting reinforce God's biblical judgment of abandonment? Is abandonment of the executives of Starbucks to the coming sin and judgment and wrath of God for being pro-gay marriage, is that the most punitive measure or would it be us not buying coffee from them? Number three, does boycotting punish the sin in the short run and isn't the longest possible run of Judgment for the sin really what's most important. Does boycotting a business that is openly pro gay have any way of showing godly compassion for sinners? Jesus Christ had both in his earthly ministry. He took a whip and drove the money changers out of his, the temple, but he also looked over Jerusalem. And saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And in compassion said, would that they could be gathered to me like chicks to a hen. Still with the boycotting issue, does boycotting negatively affect the highest company leadership of the business that promotes gay rights? Or does our boycotting hurt most the hourly local employees? Our boycotting of Starbucks, would it most impact the executives of Starbucks in Seattle, or would it most impact the honest workaday employees in Harbor Bay's Starbucks working for an hourly rate? Still with this question what is the range of response to sexual sin in the New Testament? There is a range of response in the New Testament to sexual sin. First, we need to recognize that the New Testament response was particular to two categories of sexual sinners. First, there's a category of sexual sinners who were still lost. And second, there was a category in the New Testament of sexual sinners who were saved, redeemed. Let's take these one by one. In the New Testament, the sexual sinners who were still lost, A, part A, they were publicly called out. John the Baptist called out Herod and Herodias for their adultery in remarriage, Mark 6, 17 and 18. B, sexual sinners who were still lost, they are viewed as being abandoned by God as a form of severe divine judgment being allowed to do their lifestyles is a form of God's wrath. We see that in Romans 1, 24 to 32. C, still under the New Testament responses to sexual sin by lost people. C, they are temporarily free, but end up ultimately being punished. Also, they are temporarily free, but there's a form of God's punishment against sexual sin for lost people that we read of also in Romans 1. Things like impurity of lifestyle, dishonored lifestyle, being degraded, being indecent, having due penalties of cause effect like AIDS and STDs, depravity being expressed, being without understanding, That's all in Romans 1, 24 to 32. Still with this category of New Testament response to sexual sin by lost people, they were shown compassion in some cases and reminded that salvation is needed by every sinner. Jesus, with the woman who was caught in adultery, they pulled her from her lover's arms, probably because it was a frame job, the Pharisees framed the woman. They pulled the woman, adulteress, from the adultery, and probably she'd had no clothes on, and brought her to Jesus. And Jesus' response was astoundingly compassionate. You know what he said Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, because Jewish law was she ought to be stoned to death. And Jesus said, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all slunk away like little skunks. And then Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven you, go and sin no more. That's in John 8, 1 to 11. So you can see that with sexual sin done by people not yet in relationship with God by faith in the New Testament, there's a range of response. Now let's go to the other category of sexual sinners who were saved. Uh, Sexual sinners who were redeemed in the New Testament, there were some. What's the range of response in the New Testament to people who were in right relationship with God but fell into sexual sin? Number A, they were to realize that some sexual sin is in the head before it's in the bed. Jesus taught that in Matthew 5 27 to 28. B, they were put under church discipline. if you go with me to First Corinthians five and verse one, some in this believer category committing sexual sin were under church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. In that messed up church, there was a believer who was sleeping with his stepmother. He was disciplined, rightly so. And then if you flip over to 2 Corinthians 2, he repented. 2 Corinthians 2, with the passage of time, apparently he repented, and apparently the church at Corinth was slow and unwilling to forgive him and to receive him back into full fellowship at the Lord's table. And in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6, sufficient for one, for such a one, is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Seven, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul said, when a sexual sinner who is a believer responds to church discipline and repents of sexual sin, you forgive him. You welcome him back into fellowship in the assembly. You allow him to serve Christ in the assembly. You let him come to the Lord's table because... God's forgiven him when he repented and confessed his sexual sin, and you must. Otherwise, you will lay upon him an excessive sorrow, it says in verse 7. So, the range of response to sexual sin in the New Testament for saved people first, they were to realize that sexual sin is in the head as much as it is in the bed. Second, in some cases, we see that there was church discipline that was, it worked. C, they were forgiven and restored to fellowship once truly repentant. We cover that in 2 Corinthians 2, 7 to 11. D, some who sexually sinned within the family of God in the New Testament were struck dead when they remained unrepentant in their sin. Going back to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, this really sobering passage that we read and consider when we come to the Lord's table as we did this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 31. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let's see what an unworthy manner is. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. An unworthy manner is to come to these elements without examining oneself for unconfessed sin. And that's why we gave you two opportunities in the morning service to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart for any unconfessed sin. Because, and I'm not being trite, I don't want any of you to drop dead in the communion service. I'm not being trite. Verse 28, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, that is physically weak, and sick, and a number sleep. That's a soft way of saying they died. When they came to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner with sexual sin or other varieties of sin, and they didn't confess their sin before they partook of the elements, some of them were struck dead. They slept. A euphemism, a soft way of saying they died. They were struck dead. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. So we're seeing a wide range of New Testament response to sexual sin for believers. Uh, We're to understand the nature of sexual sin is as much in our head as men as it is in a bed. That some are church disciplined, and properly so for sexual sin. That once the person repents in response to church discipline, we are to forgive them and welcome them back into fellowship. And some who were secretive about their sexual sin at the Lord's table will struck dead. going on, E, they were called to praise God for forgiving their past sexual sins. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, when a sexual sinner as a believer uh, confesses that sin, renounces that sin, turns from that sin. By the way, confession should be as broad as the knowledge of the sin. So an adulterer shouldn't stand up in the whole assembly and confess the sin of adultery, but the adulterer should confess the sin to God, all sin is against God, and confess the sin to the person he or she committed adultery with. But that's, the confession of any sin should only be as broad as the knowledge of the sin. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, to the person who is forgiven of sexual sin by God is to praise God, obviously. And F... They were warned, those that had sexually sinned as believers, were warned not to revert to sexual sin. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor Windlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So let me tie a scriptural ribbon around this answer. The question is, should we boycott businesses that are openly pro-gay? That's the question. And I think the following texts give the answer. And the first text is where I started this answer. The first text is in Romans 14, 22 to 23. The faith which you have as your own conviction before God, happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. That's a bottom line answer to this question. If you doubt that you should give business to Starbucks, then don't. Don't violate your conscience. Second, in Genesis 18, in Genesis 18, There's an interesting interchange going on between Abraham and God over Sodom and Gomorrah. Basically, Abraham is asking God not to obliterate Sodom and Gomorrah, which one of their prominent sins was homosexual intimacy. And Abraham kept moving the number down. God, if, you, if there were so many believers in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you withhold your judgment? And then in 1825, Abraham says something that's a timeless principle. Far be it from thee, that's God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth Deal justly? And we know the answer to that question is the judge of all the earth will deal justly. And then another bottom line is in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Luke 12, 2 and 3, Jesus is speaking. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner room shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. You don't have to wonder if any pro-gay company is going to find the judgment of God except they come to Christ. You don't have to wonder, because Jesus said whatever was done in secret will become open then Romans twelve nineteen is another text I think that comes to bear in answering this question of boycott. Romans 12, verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you heap burning coals upon his head. You always wonder what burning coals on your head was a good thing. But people in that time often moved from place to place to live, and they needed Heat and they needed a source of cooking. So they would take wet cloth and put it on top of their heads, and they get a bowl with embers, like charcoal, uh, smoldering embers, and put it in the bowl, and they would carry it to where they're going to live next, and they could cook right away because they had this source of heat. And so really, when you say you'll heap burning coals upon their head, it's saying you'll help them. And last, should we boycott businesses that are openly pro-gay Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." Business executives and I, again, I'm not just picking on Starbucks, I'm just using one example. There are many other businesses who their corporate offices fly the rainbow flag over their corporate offices. Please understand, I'm just using Starbucks as a consistent example. There are many others. This is saying that those corporate executives, when they implemented those company policies and invest their money in promoting the gay agenda, those deeds are written in the books. And they will be judged for those deeds. Do I think the the young lady behind the counter who makes a latte for you tomorrow morning has any part in the decision of the pro-gay agenda at Starbucks? I doubt it. I really doubt it. So I'll leave it between you and the Lord. Those are my biblical thoughts on it. Now, second question. Is it right for Christians to be a part of Freemasonry? The answer is no, unequivocally no. It's not right. Here's why. Ten reasons. Number one, Freemasonry is not just a fraternal organization, it's a religion. Here's why it's a religion. Masons have their own altar. Their own teachings on the concept of God. Masons have their own pulpit, their own vows. They have their own sacred literature. They have their own funeral services. Masons have their own worship and their own rituals and their own worshipful master. It's a religion. Number two, Christians must compromise biblical teaching to participate in the lodge. Number three, numerous Christian denominations have taken public stands against Freemasonry, and and rightly so. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are some of the denominations that clearly state it's wrong. Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Pentecostal Churches, Church of the Nazarene, Seventh-day Adventists, Church of God, Mennonite Church, Reformed and Orthodox Presbyterian Churches, and Calvary Bible Church. Number four, Freemasonry is dabbling in the occult. It draws upon Kabbalism, Rosicrucianism, and alchemy. You can look up what those mean on your own time. Freemasonry teaches that God's true name is not found in the names we find for God in the Bible, but it's the name of Jabulon. Where does Jabulon come from? It's a derivative of the Old Testament idol Baal. The lodge teaches that God's true name is associated with Baal. Number six, Freemasonry teaches that God is not a trinity. Number seven, Freemasonry is idolatrous. Number eight, the name of Jesus in the lodge is totally subtracted from all the scripture passages that are read in the lodge. And Jesus is understood as being only one of many good and moral teachers. Masons are not allowed to pray a prayer that is offered in Jesus' name. Salvation in the Freemasonry system is gained and earned, not to be received by faith in Christ nor by God's grace. Salvation is gained or earned through ethical living. Is there anything wrong with ethical living? No. But if you are basing your forgiveness of sins on ethical living, you are wrong. You are out of step with the Bible. Number ten, Freemasonry denies original sin. I'm not going to read all these scriptures, not because they're not very important, but for the sake of time. Scriptures that address the errors of the Masonic Lodge are the following ephesians five eight to eleven hosea four thirteen and fourteen first kings eighteen verse twenty eight jeremiah nineteen verses four and five john one verse one john eight verse fifty eight john ten verse thirty john twenty verse twenty eight colossians two nine john sixteen twenty four luke nine twenty six Isaiah 64, verse 6. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. Romans 3, 23. And Romans 5, 12. Get the picture. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 12. Leviticus 19, verse 31. Leviticus 20, verse 6. Jeremiah 27, verse 9. Micah 5, verse 12. Ephesians 5, 7 to 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 20 to 22. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 17. Now, I am, I'm your new pastor, and I, I love all of you sincerely. I have no idea if there are any Freemasons in our church family. I have no idea. But I have to tell you the truth. It's my responsibility to tell you the truth. Born-again men, let me just be clear, born-again men should have no part in Freemasonry. My... Fraternal grandfather joined the lodge and became a Mason to promote business contacts in Toronto as a funeral home owner. But when he became a born again Christian, he walked out of the lodge much to the disdain of his lodge mates that didn't want to let him go. The last thing I'll say about this I want the Bible to have the last word, of course. 2 Corinthians. Six, starting at verse 14. Second Corinthians six, starting at verse 14. This is the bottom line answer to should a Christian man be in the, in the Freemasonry? Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial is the name of Satan. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you should be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let me stop right there and answer questions that you have tonight.
1: Um, Pastor Wood, should uh, people who work for companies like Starbucks... Believers who work
0: for companies like Starbucks do, what should their position be? A good question. I, to me, that comes back to Romans 14. Um, Romans 14 is the principle of conscience and doubt. I would say to a believer who would ask me, Pastor, should I keep working for Starbucks? I would say the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God, your own conviction before God. By the way, a conviction is different than an opinion. An opinion is not based on scripture. I like green rather than red. That's a silly example. We should have communion once a month, not once every quarter year. That's an opinion. I wouldn't cross the street for my opinions. A conviction is is what you believe based on scripture. And I would die for my convictions. I wouldn't cross the street for my opinions, but I would die for my convictions. And so I would say to that person, the faith which you have as your own conviction before God Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. You would condemn yourself in what you approved if your conviction, based on scripture, was you ought not to work for a company that's pro-gay. If you go against that, then you would, verse 23, you would doubt. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So it's a great question. I would say to that employee, do you have a conviction about this? Something you base on scripture. And if you have a conviction that you ought not to work for that company, you have a doubt that you should work for that company, then for you to work for that company would be sin. So don't do it. Um,
1: Based on what you said this morning, um, if, uh, sorry? (laughs) If um, people who lived before the law was given if um, uh, sin was not imputed to them, then what,
0: what is their destiny? I mean, well, do they it, come under judgment? Yes, they do, because everyone after Adam and Eve physically died, so they came under the judgment of physical death as just an outward proof that they were under judgment for their sin. But really, we were trying to see in Romans 5 this morning, verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What I tried to teach on that is that if you were, if you were covetous uh, before the law, you were guilty of being covetous in the courtroom of heaven, but you didn't know the name for the sin it wasn't until the commandments were given to Moses that it was explained you ought not to long for your neighbor's property or your neighbor's wife and not to be covetous. So sin uh, counted and sin brought about God's judgment prior to the giving of the law. But what this verse is trying to say is that it didn't specify to the sinner what the transgression was until the law made that clear. So the illustration I tried to make this morning was if I speed but there's no policeman to enforce the speed limit and doesn't catch me, I'm still guilty of breaking the law of the speed limit. But it hasn't been imputed to my driving record.
1: Um, should Christian students be involved
0: in, law, in fraternities? At, at college? At college, yeah. Um, it would be the same principles. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if the fraternity asked you to make promises that were contrary to scripture, if the fraternity insisted on initi- initiation rites that involved abusing alcohol or degrading women, mm-hmm. I saw a fraternal uh, sign on a bed sheet at, I be- believe it was Virginia Tech, that was absolutely scandalous mm-hmm. in what it said in terms of impurity. And sinfulness, and they hung it right on the right on the fraternity house. So, I have let's put it this way: I can't think of a fraternity at any college that I am aware of that honors Jesus Christ. They don't call themselves a fraternity; they call themselves Intervarsity Christian Fellowship, they call themselves Campus Crusade for Christ, etc. So, um, I don't really see any uh, way for a Christian uh, student at a college as a female, to join a sorority because I don't think it's going to ask her to honor Jesus. And I don't see a way for a Christian fella to join a fraternity at a college because I don't think it's going to ask him to honor Jesus either. Now, if I am missing some fraternity out there and some sorority out there that honors Jesus, then I will stand corrected if someone shows me that, but I don't think he will be showing me that.
1: I would like to, um, I know you mentioned in Romans chapter 14. Yes. But just in the, the chapter before that. Yes. I would like, may I read um, um, verse 1 and 13? It says, every soul must be subject to the power of all authority. Because yes. everyone is, it's, it's, in, in other words, it's, um, everyone is subject to the authority of God. And my question is tonight... I don't know if he was following the, the Kentucky um, with Kim Davis, where she refused to give the gay um, marriage license. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, she works for, uh, for the government or the public um, mm-hmm. servant. Okay? Yes. And it says, every soul must be subject unto the authority of God. Is she, she, was, she had a conviction, and she refused to give that. Is she disobeying? Um, the authority of the government?
0: What a great question.
1: Um, because I'm, I'm just, in that same context, I look into um, Acts, where Peter and John were preaching the gospel, and, they, and the authority asked them not to preach the gospel, and they said they must obey
0: God rather than man. So how do we relate that to Kim Davis? Um, you are um, spot on, Priscilla. Uh, in Acts 5, they said, we must obey God rather than men, and they kept preaching the gospel. You're absolutely right. That's the first verse that came into my mind when you were asking your question. Excellent, excellent. Um, back to Romans 13. The, the uh, admonition, the command for believers to be in subjection to governing authorities is not across the board, because when you go through that passage... It teaches that the governing authorities from God that we are to be subjected to punish evil and reward righteousness. Let me show you that. Um, Verse 3 For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, authority, governmental authority, it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword. There are three Greek words for sword in the New Testament. A dagger, a medium sword, and an executioner's sword. The word here for sword is the one for the executioner's sword. So the Old Testament and the New Testament teach capital punishment. That's not your question. But what it is saying is that we are to stand in subjection under governments that punish evil, even to the point of capital punishment, and reward good. But when a government, any government, rewards evil and punishes good, we must have civil disobedience. So so this young lady who said she wouldn't do it I've seen all over the news while she shouldn't be in that job, she should have walked out of that job if the job insists she should do it. What we have on the the, the brink in, in the United States is the criminalization of Christianity. I said that. Christianity is going to be a crime in the United States. It's well on its way. She had to obey God rather than men. When she said that to the two men who wanted to be married, they said, under what authority will you not give me a license? And she said, God's authority. She was right. We need to pray for her. She's in prison. Christianity in the United States of America, and I'm an American citizen, is coming to be criminalized. Christians who stand on this book are going to be judged to be criminals. This is just the thin edge of the wedge. Thank you for your questions.
2: One morning, Van Ray was on the internet and there is a, a singer that I totally enjoy. Sings the most beautiful love songs and, and odes to, to women, clearly. I've actually not sung these songs to my wife, but I've mimed them. Because I won't do, <laughs> I, I, I would not do singers justice if I tried to sing, it, sing them. But um, very, very pure songs, very, very pure love songs. And Van said to me, uh oh, she was looking on the internet. And she said, uh oh. No, no, she didn't say, uh oh. She said, really, Barry Manilow just got married. And she said, he married his manager. And I said, oh, please tell me his manager is a, I was about to say, a female. And of course, as some of you may know, his manager is a male. Now, question arose in my mind. Should I go through my CD collection and destroy every Barry Barlow CD? Should I not attend a concert? To which the same songs that he sang before are still sung, and he does not in any way portray that gay lifestyle in public, on stage, etc. And I feel in conjunction with what's said in the word and practicality and common sense. I, I know my answer. Now, it also f- took me to another thought while I was sitting here this evening. Uh, I, pl- I played racquetball with a group of guys, three guys, the most moral men you would find. None were born again at the time. After the game, we would sit down and not consume a case of bears. But after the games, we would sit down and consume bottles and bottles of Gatorade. Our conversations were always pure. And I always knew with my heart, if a bear ever surfaced, I would leave. If an alcoholic drink pops up, I would leave. If the conversation changes color, I know that's my time to get out. Long story short, never happened some of the most decent men that I know and best friends, all were not saved at the time. A couple of them are today. So I'd just like to throw that out there for a quick comment.
0: Yeah, Second um, Corinthians 6, 14 doesn't prevent that kind of a friendship at the racket club. Um, do not be bound together or unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership of righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Uh, Being bound together is very specific. Being bound together with an unbeliever takes away your autonomous ability to make a decision. You are unequally yoked together with an unbeliever if you have a business partner who's not saved because it takes away your autonomous right to make a decision. You have to go with his decision as much as yours. Uh, being married, if you are married to an unbeliever, you are bound together in a relationship that takes away your autonomy to make a godly decision because you have a mate. Now let me, let me be clear that if I had $5 for every woman who's come to me in 30 years of pastoral ministry and said that her husband faked being born again before they were married and then it became clear he wasn't born again, I'd have a lot of money. So that's a very unfortunate situation. But people who are business partners are yoked together. People who are married are yoked together. People who co-sign on loans are bound together. You get the point. That if you enter into a relationship with an unbeliever that takes away your autonomy, your separateness, the authority you have to make a decision before God, then that is wrong having Gatorades at the racket club with these men who don't know Christ does not take one ounce of your decision authority away from you not an ounce and you said if they have off-color stories or they start drinking alcohol you have an unhindered right to say I'm out of here but that's different than co-signing loan with them that's different from becoming a partner in business with them okay on dating young people, every date is a potential mate. How many of the married people marry someone they never dated? That would be zero. Because every date is a potential mate. And young people don't do missionary dating. Oh, if I just become his girlfriend, he'll see Christ in me and he'll become a Christian, maybe. If I just get romantic with her, she'll come to know my God, maybe. Every date is a potential mate. Do not date an unbeliever ever. And I'll also go even further. Do not date a Christian who is not growing in their faith. Because if you think that walking down this aisle and standing at that altar to get married to you is going to make them a spiritual man, you need to marry someone who is not only born again, but who is advancing in the things of God. Whether that is a woman or a man, you cannot lose sight of the fact that that you need someone who's got a vital relationship with Christ, a growing relationship with Christ, shared ambitions, shared goals for ministry, shared convictions based on the Bible. Don't missionary date ever. If you come to me and say you're dating someone and I say, are they a born-again, growing Christian, you go, "Bah, bah, 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 bah." blah. You're going to hear it from me in love. I'm going to confront you because I love you. And I don't want you to come to my study in two years and say, he faked me out. He wasn't really a Christian. I don't want that. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for any of you who are single. All right? We have to quit. This has been a good evening. Let's do this again sometime.